During the last 13 years, over and over again, reports of bizarre, grisly chainsaw mass murders have persisted all across the state of Texas. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre has not stopped. It haunts Texas. It seems to have no end. Hang it up, Lamo. Go call your mother. So this is Radio Land, huh? You're my fave. <laughs> Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. Listen, this is not gonna work out. <laughs> I'm trying to be open with you. It's nobody's fault. I just can't do this. <laughs> boys, boys, boys. You never should have been doing this. I'm the Lord of the Harvest. Who's that? Some new health food bunch? Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a film that takes place in 1986, which is 13 years after the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, its story got a bit tweaked from uh, what it was originally intended to be, but it is a wild departure from the realism and grit of Texas Chainsaw 1. It's more of a black comedy. Uh, there's really no synopsis that will prepare you for it, but uh, it follows a radio DJ by the name of Vanita, that we call Stretch, who overhears a couple of college kids get murdered via a chainsaw on what is possibly the world's largest bridge, or longest bridge, rather. And uh, the, it, the family comes out as she replays this at the request of a uh, very strange cop, played by Dennis Hopper, uh, replays it on the radio to get their attention. And, well, she doesn't know that until the family comes and kidnaps her and it deals with her journey following that fateful phone call. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host. And that was Christy Gersten talking about Toby Hooper's 1986 horror comedy, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Ms. Gersten is a talent coordinator who has been assisting and coordinating talent at horror and other genre cons in an official and non-official capacity for over a decade. In addition, she is also a part of the Scream Stream and occasionally features on their watch-along streams with trivia. Ms. Gersten, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you so much for having me. Now, can I ask, as with every show, um, out of any horror movie you might have chosen, any at all, why did you not go with Shaun of the Dead? <laughs> that was a very difficult decision, and we waffled between it a lot because it, Shaun of the Dead is one of my absolute favorites. But at the end of the day, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, to me, is one of the most enduringly just above and beyond surreal horror movies that just doesn't get enough love. Everyone will say they love Shaun of the Dead, but everyone has a complicated feeling about Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. What do you think that is? I, you know, often with, 
I guess I should say, I mean, it's hard to find anybody out there who would call the original Texas Chainsaw anything less than, you know, one of the great horror movies, you know? And generally, when it comes to classics being sequelized, even if the sequel is good, you know, if it's following in the footsteps of something that's genuinely great, then inevitably it can't help but pale in comparison. Do you think that's part of the reason that people maybe might not show Chainsaw 2 as much love as they should, and they don't really view it as kind of the more standalone solid gem that it is that I think it is anyway. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, why do you think that is? Why do you think that chainsaw two doesn't get nearly as much uh, attention and love as it should? I think it's for the same reason. Most sequels do not get the attention and love that they should. I mean, there's other reasons compounding uh, chainsaw two, but I would say everyone kind of expected if there was, if there was going to be a sequel, they expected it to be as gritty and real and dark and and lacking in humor as most people perceived the first one to be. I will tell you, first of all, that there was no lack of humor in the first one. You just weren't paying attention. Uh, there's a lot of black comedy lines in there, the most notable of which is uh, Drayton yelling, look what your brother did to the door. <laughs> I mean, it's it was a black comedy. It's just the comedy was a lot more sparse and it was gritty and real. And so... With Texas Chainsaw 2, there's more focus on the comedy, and, and it just goes, balls out absurd from the beginning. And so I think it was both mistakenly, it suffered from the poor marketing, poor uh, summaries. Nothing can do it justice. I can't explain this movie to friends in a way that makes sense. I'm just like, come watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with me. It's nuts. Like, that's it. That's all you get from me because there's nothing you can say to prepare people for what they're going to see. And I think now and in the last few years, we've learned to really appreciate what Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is and what Toby Hooper was going for and why some decisions were made. But I think back then, people didn't want that much comedy in their horror. It hadn't... Yeah, we have Evil Dead 2 and stuff like that, but I think the fact that it was a sequel to something that people felt didn't have comedy kind of shot it in the foot. And it's just kind of developed a cult following from the people who kind of went, no, no, we get it. Yeah. I, I wonder too, how much that scream factory special edition played a hand in that at people maybe reevaluating it. I remember uh, they put out that amazing, you know, it was like a two disc edition. Uh, and, um, you know, it always seems like whenever a movie gets like uh, an anniversary edition or collector's edition or, you know, if Arrow or Scream Factory or one of those boutique labels, you know, puts out a movie that might not be as loved as it should, then inevitably, you know, people seem to want to give it a second chance and maybe uh, give it a little more love than uh, than they had before. Although that doesn't always work. I, I'm sorry. I don't care how many collector's editions you put out of uh, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2 or Creepshow 2. I am never going to like those movies that much. Uh, although the Blu-rays were Creepshow cool. 2 is great. Uh, I love The Raft. I think it's great. Um, and, you know, some <laughs> of the wraparounds. I don't know. But it's still... <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, you know, I, I, I've always loved Chainsaw 2. I... I I have a weird relationship with that franchise. I was uh, before I was a horror fan. My brother liked to uh, 
sort of torture me with uh, with horror movies. He would call me into the room uh, with a promise that we would watch like a fun action movie or a comedy or a ninja flick or something, and I would walk in, and, you know, sure enough, there would be like Jason Voorhees hacking somebody to death. And, you know, I... I was I was not prepared for that at like five years old, six years old, something like that. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, when I was a kid, we were uh, my my mother dropped he and I and a buddy of his off to the theater with the uh, the assumption that we were going to watch. uh, Oh, God, some PG or PG-13 comedy. And what did we wind up seeing instead? Leatherface. The first experience I had with any (laughs) chainsaw movie was Leatherface Chainsaw 3, which uh, I, again, was not prepared for that. Like, horror, I thought, was like ghosts and ghouls and goblins and, mm-hmm. you know, Halloween and getting candy. What the hell was this guy wearing somebody else's face and hacking people to death with a chainsaw, you know? And then from there, he, uh, you know, he rented Chainsaw 2. And I remember catching glimpses of it as a kid and just being like, well, this is different. This is not like this... There's something so strange about this mix of like, you know, what's meant to be terrifying, but also it's it's kind of like cartoony at times. Not completely, like but yep. it is it is broad at times in a way that was kind of unexpected. And then eventually I, I wound up catching the first one on uh, muddy VHS when I was uh, a full fledged horror fan later on and I revisited the entire franchise that way. So I had a very I, I kind of watched it all backwards and uh mm-hmm. so as a result, Chainsaw Two never caught me as being too terribly strange you know for its uh for its differences from the original movie and uh and watching them in order i mean you know the the film is nowhere near as terrifying as the original film but it it never really tries to be you know all the horrific bits in the film it's always almost played with a bit of a a light touch or with jet black humor and it honestly, you know, I described it as a horror comedy in the opening, but really it's more of a comedy that just happens to have gore in it. Yeah. I think it's, it's some of the summaries will say it's a, instead of saying it's a horror film, they'll call it a black comedy. I'm like, no, that's, that's pretty much nails it is if you're going in there expecting it to be like some psychological torture, that's not what you're going to get. You're, I mean, I'm, unless you have a weird definition of psychological torture, <laughs> I had kind of the same exposure in that I had uh, I've got sleep disorders. One of them, when I was a kid, was horribly bad night terrors, and I mean like actual night terrors. Yeah, uh, you can't shake it when you wake up. You know, you can't go back to sleep. So I was not allowed to watch anything scary. Like I would have nightmares from Scooby Doo sometimes, and I loved it because it's this thing that scares you, and it's. Like, it's a weird feeling when you're a kid. It's like getting your first, you know, erection or something. You're just like, this doesn't feel right, but it feels very right. What is this? And among the my dad used to love horror movies. So we would go to Blockbuster and we'd go down the aisles and I'd stare at all the gory pictures and all this craziness. But I couldn't watch it. Like, the pictures were enough to scare me. And then he'd go and he'd watch it at night when I was asleep. And... One of the ones that I had seen bits and pieces of when I was a kid was Texas Chainsaw 2. And I only saw bits and pieces of Chop Top, which to me was a cartoon. Like, I loved Chop Top, but I didn't realize that Chop Top was in a horror movie or anything like that. I mean, I remember going to, um, I live in uh, California, and there was an old wax museum near Knott's Berry Farm called Movie Land. And like for people who haven't been to the old wax museums, um, usually they have the horror stuff set aside from the regular movie stuff. And so halfway through movie land, 
um, you go to a gift shop and off to the side, there's a horror section with a big old wax figure of Elvira, who's not scary. And, you know, my mom was kind of gothy. So I was like, oh, she reminds me of mom. (laughs) And my dad was like, all right, cool. Stay here. I'm going to go around the corner and go through the horror thing. You don't need to see this. And so my first exposure beyond the occasionally seeing that VHS uh, and those little like clips of Chop Top, my first exposure was I walked around the corner and they had the entire dinner scene from the first movie set up. (laughs) Full on human bones, blood everywhere, like girl tied to the chair, leather face with the chainsaw. So it took me a very long time to actually watch anything with Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the title. Is that that traumatized me a little bit? I would imagine. My God. <laughs> Just you know, and it was. I liked it. It was cool, but the thought it it was the thought that my dad just went down a hallway where that's the first thing you see. That I was like, there could be a real person in here ready to kill my dad, and I am too afraid to do anything. Kind of feeling for me. So it took a while, um, but when I saw it, I saw. I believe I saw Texas Chainsaw. To first, because I had seen some clip of something in uh, a horror show, like, you know, Masters of Horror or something, where they were showing Bill as Chop Top. And I went, oh, I remember this guy. And, you know, went and watched it. And I loved it. It was great. Then, you know, imagine my surprise watching literally any of the other Texas Chainsaw films. Now, having watched it as many times as I have, you know, knowing some behind the scenes stories through audio commentaries and interviews and and through bill it honestly is one of the few films that i can say without hesitation absolutely gets better and more interesting each time you watch it yeah absolutely and you know it's funny i just uh I just revisited it again for uh you know for this conversation and it it really does like it's you know, it's almost like peeling back layers every time you watch the movie. I mean, it just, it works a little bit better every time you see it. And it works better as a comedy. I don't remember laughing quite as hard on those previous viewings of the movie than, uh, than I did this time. I've always sort of accepted that it's a comedy, but, you know, I was uh, I was gut laughing at some of the stuff this time around. Um, and uh, maybe I'm just a sicker individual now that I've gotten older. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but I really appreciated it. And, uh, you know, I think part of it is the fact that Generally, when I watch part two, it's always in sequence with the other films. It's usually a part of a double feature that I'll watch with the first movie, and then I'll eventually follow up straight away with the third and fourth movies. Um, And there was something about watching it on its own this time, as its own little, you know, kind of beast that it it really, I think it might be my favorite viewing of it, watching it sort of untethered from you know the 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 first film and the sequels and uh as a result i I really did love it and uh, and yet at the same time like i on some level as you're watching it you can't help but compare it to that original movie and you know sort of marvel at how much hooper did his very best to distance himself you know from that original movie i mean you you pointed it out i mean the original is very gritty it's very documentary like you know whereas two is very theatrical you know the garish lighting mm-hmm. is sort of a far cry from that sort of very natural look the first film had and you know even 
the music, you know, the music is very playful, obviously the humor, um, but it just, it all serves to give viewers a completely different experience from the 74 film. And I'm not sure that's, that's appreciated as often as it should be. I think there's, for me anyways, I've watched enough Toby Hooper stuff um, over the years, excessively sometimes. Um, we just did a rewatch of a number of his films uh, following uh, his birthday, actually. And I think for me, it doesn't feel like it's a departure um, because so much is hearkening back to something that was in the original film. Like people will go, oh, they posed the bodies really weird in the tunnels. And it's like, well, they made furniture out it out of them in the first film, but did you not find that interesting and funny? Cause I mean, to me as an adult looking at that, not as a kid in a wax museum, as an adult looking at that, it's, it's yes, horrifying. Cause Ed Gain did it, but it's also kind of a little bit funny because you kind of, there's that dark humor of, well, I guess when you kill that many bodies, you just have bones laying around. You might as well make something out of it. I guess. Make something <laughs> useful. Like, it's, you know, the the mausoleum, or what is it, the ossuary in Prague, where they had so many bodies that were buried there because it had supposedly been consecrated with the soil from Golgotha. It, it's in Kutnahora. And that ossuary is, they built decorations into the wall of the church out of all of these bones because, like, what the hell else are you going to do with them? <laughs> So, like, imagine you're eating that many people that you're like, well, shit, we need a table. Fuck going to Ikea. <laughs> We've got the parts here. Let's assemble it. Let's be artistic. They don't They don't want to waste even one part of the animal. Uh, it's very... <laughs> oh, my God. I'm never going to be able to look at the original movie quite the same way. I, I got to admit, I... As <laughs> as much as I, you know, pick up on some of the humor in the original movie, I don't think that ever extended for me down to the furniture. But now I will, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm curious to to check out the first movie again to see how that plays this time around. Because like you mentioned, I, you know, you see the bones littered about, you see Bob Burns, you know, sort of incredible set dressing and, you know, it immediately draws a parallel to Ed Gein, which is very, yep. very sort of grim. But, uh, but now the next time I watch it, I'll probably just... Um, Imagine Leatherface being kind of um, kind of annoyed that the bones aren't snapping together as easily as Ikea would. So Right. Like, well, how am I going to get this femur to attach to this skull so I can make a new lamp? <laughs> I, well, you know, if the Sawyers were operating much the same way today, I wonder if they would have, like, an Etsy shop or something. Like, Oh, my God. They totally would. <laughs> forget cooking chili. Like, so this just... is the reboot we need. I would watch it. I would watch the hell out of it. Right? That's, uh, we are getting a reboot, aren't we? Aren't we getting like the ninth or tenth movie already? Something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm not going to lie. I've not watched a lot of the more recent ones. I do enjoy uh, Texas Chainsaw McConaughey. I, I think the person that does, uh, other no. than Phil Fangoria. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I'm with you. I, uh, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there are large swaths of that movie that I am not a fan of at all. But I think, uh, but there are these little flashes of brilliance in it. Like yeah. I, uh, and I think McConaughey is absolutely incredible in it. Like you watch yeah. that guy. I mean, I remember when the movie came out on VHS. I was the guy pestering my local Pick and Save back when Pick and Save actually had like a video store section that was probably like you know, a square six foot area, you know, near, uh, 
they're the produce section. And uh, every week, you know, I had heard online back, uh, you know, back when you couldn't get a whole lot of info about release dates and stuff, that this movie was coming out at some point soon, and I couldn't wait to see it. And so every week I would be that annoying kid being like, is it in yet? Is it in yet? Is it in yet? And then finally it was in, and... I remember, you know, the box art pushing the fact that McConaughey and Renee Zellweger were in it. And uh, yep. I popped it in and, you know, you watch McConaughey's performance and it's like, no, that it's all right there. That guy's going to be a star. He's he's yeah. in a movie that's not really successful, but he's making the most of it. I can't say the same for Renee Zellweger that much. I think she's brilliant. Yeah. I You can tell that she's kind of... She's not happy about the movie she's in, and she's doing it for a paycheck, I think. Uh, <laughs> but McConaughey... that's, how, that's how I feel about Dennis Hopper in Texas Chainsaw 2. <gasps> I feel like someone told Dennis Hopper that Blue Velvet was over. Oh, I, I love Lefty. I love his performance. No, I do too, but I absolutely... like. I like to play this game where you try to string together movies that an actor's been in and pretend as though this is the next logical step in this timeline. <laughs> and to me, like, so for if you don't know, uh, they filmed Blue Velvet right before Texas Chainsaw 2 and they filmed Hoosiers afterwards. Uh, and so uh, famously, Dennis Hopper used to say it's the worst movie he's ever been in, uh, you know, until he was in Super Mario Brothers and, and it was one up to which I say, you agreed to it, dude. Like, <laughs> just own it. Um. No, but it's. It, we, I did an audience participation uh, with Texas Chainsaw Two, and it's just the the jokes for his performance. Whenever something came up on his performances, we you know we'd shout "Paps Blue Ribbon," <laughs> or when he jumps down and goes, "I am the Lord of the Harvest." I was just kind of like, "Oh fuck, anything that moves," because it's, it seems so much like the same, just over the top, Dennis. Hopper character and I love Lefty. I, I there is nothing about this movie I don't love. To be honest with you, I love Bob Elmore. I love Bill Johnson. I love like this movie's amazing. But it's so much funnier when you think about the fact that like he's just pretty much still his Blue Velvet character. <laughs> I. Uh... You know, I, I had never considered that before, but at the same time, like. I Okay, let's be honest. If Frank Booth had been searching for the Sawyer clan, the Sawyer clan wouldn't have made it out alive. I'm oh, pretty yeah, no, sure absolutely. he would have massacred them all and uh, probably done obscene things along the way. Like I <laughs> and now right, I want to see absolutely. I want to see that Texas true. Chainsaw sequel. Uh <laughs> oh, Well, I God. mean, like he also you got to figure he also becomes a a functioning alcoholic because I mean they demonstrate that with Lefty and uh, he's become a joke on the force because he's obsessed with this this myth of this family. Which, by the way, can I just say that you know I know I said there's nothing about it I don't love, but there is something about it I only like and not quite love. Which is why the hell did the family bring his brother's corpse from this? place they clearly abandoned very quickly to a f- amusement park that they bought like why did they bring that particular corpse into the amusement park <laughs> well no hey they're all about family you know they had to bring uh 
they had to bring the hitchhiker. They had to bring, uh, you know, uh, they had to bring uh, grandma and grandpa. And then, you know, at a certain point, you know, maybe they were just really sentimental about their final uh, victims. So, you know, why not drag Franklin along? Why not drag... Uh... Actually, is Franklin the only victim that we see that we recognize? I wonder if... Uh... Oh, the rest of the poor folks from uh, the first movie are are meant to be in there somewhere. They just can't uh, let go. They're n- nothing I have ever heard about it says that they ever have, and I've listened to a lot of audio commentaries. Um, yeah, yeah, that is strange. But I it wish. is, and it is kind of like it is a little cheap, admittedly that he finds him there and i wonder if it was even needed like all that we need to know is that he is after them for that very specific reason and uh you know we i i almost feel like there's meant to be like a bit of an emotional punch to that moment when lefty sees you know that body but at the same time it's just kind of like you know there it it's not there and it, it doesn't play as a comic moment, but it doesn't play as like a, a moment with much weight either. So I, I, I wonder why that decision was made. I mean, I can't imagine it's for uh, – would Hooper have cared about crafting an Easter egg for fans of a 14-year-old movie at that point or uh, 11-year-old movie at that point? 12? Eh, math, whoever. Whatever it is. So but, there's – there is some some more uh, – sorry, I don't know why I said that as though that was one word. There is more – uh, context to Lefty's story that kind of got cut out. Lefty's actually supposed to be the illegitimate father of Stretch, but they chose to leave that out. I, I think what it's supposed to be theoretically is like a moment turning point where he's like, no, I'm absolutely going to give my life to take these guys down. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me like that was ever a problem for him considering long before then he just is already sawing down the support beams on a mine shaft that's falling <laughs> on his head as he does it. Yeah, which, I mean, is he expecting that uh, Stretch is going to make it out too? Like, you know, he it seems like he's bringing the house down on everybody at that point. It's like, dude, if you he are... He thinks are, Stretch are, is dead. Do, do you think... Yeah, because when he sees her in the in the basement, he loses his mind because he's just like sister because he's shocked that she's alive. I'll be damned. I never read it that way. <laughs> I got to rewatch it again. Uh, I, I will say like I <laughs> as as fun as Hopper can be in the role and as uh, sadly as uh, as much as he maybe didn't care for the movie. I let the inright is just a fascinating character to me. You know, he's. Uh, oh, yeah. When we first meet him, I mean, he is the very image of the traditional lawman or cowboy mm-hmm. type, you know. And Hopper, to his credit, Hopper plays him straight most of the time, which works really well. Mm-hmm. But then we see these little cracks, you know, yeah. throughout. He isn't quite all there. He's a little too driven for revenge. And eventually he's just downright mad at times. And I love that we get the occasional glimpse of that throughout before we uh, we get to the big finale. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking yeah, especially nope. of that... Uh, that amazing scene where he tests out all of the various chainsaws, you know, in most other oh, movies. Oh, my aching banana. <laughs> what is that even? Why was that guy I, there? I, I I would love to know more about that shop owner. I have questions about him. But, <laughs> but you know, I mean, in, in most other movies, that would be a hero's moment. You know, that's, that's, um, that's a gunslinger loading his pistols mm-hmm. and pulling on his holsters. Or that's... Uh, uh, that's Rambo pulling his bandana tight. But here, 
you know, it's already over the top, sure, but the way that Hopper kind of leans into it with his performance, you know, wielding those chainsaws like he's Leatherface himself, you kind of realize that, you know, we, we, we don't have a traditional hero in this movie. Everybody is a little cracked in their own way, and it just, it kind of serves to unsettle us even more than we would be otherwise, I think. So that's so that right there is the exact reason why I even though it yes it's a, it's a black comedy why it belongs in the horror section to me is that the horror is not the same focus because in Texas Chainsaw One it's that there's this family out in the middle of nowhere that is systematically killing people en masse and eating them and no one notices it the horror in this one is just the fact that they're you don't have a person to latch on to. I mean, obviously you latch on to Stretch because final girl and victim and whatever. And and Stretch is an amazing character, so I'm not belittling Caroline Williams' character in this because she did a phenomenal job. But I think part of, a big part of Texas Chainsaw 2 is that there isn't, a, there is never a choice to make as far as who to side with that isn't complicated. It shows you that, like, every every character in that, with the exception of maybe the chainsaw shop guy, um, is a little bit violent and crazy. Even if they're pushed to get to that point, they're all a little bit violent and crazy. Or they're, you know, in Stretch's case, she's left that way. You know, I don't know. She's probably yeah. the straightest character that we have, you know, uh, up until the final two minutes. And then... By the time we get to that moment, it's, you know, much like Sally at the end of the first movie, we we are left with a, a hero that is broken by the events that we've witnessed, which is kind of, you know, for a comedy and for an absurd image to leave us with at the end of it, you know, it's still kind of sad, you know, in... Uh, yeah, now, of course, we can take into consideration Leatherface, where apparently Stretch turns into a, an investigative journalist at some point, but... Yep. Um, yep. I, I mean, is that canon? Can we can we consider? It is. is it? A... It is canon. It is absolutely canon. That is specifically what the director told Caroline Williams when he asked her to come on. Really? Was okay. that you are Stretch? You are your character from two. Like so, it's it is canon. Uh, Caroline and the others all consider it to be canon because that's what she was told, and so that's how she played it. I wonder how then how do you feel about where this film leaves our characters then you know can can we believe that Leatherface really survives what he goes through in this film's finale only to pop up in the third film like nothing happened you know I I almost see three as a sequel yes yeah totally that a sequel that ignores the previous movie and kind of acts as a a direct follow-up to the first film. I kind of feel the same way about Next Generation as well. And, uh, you know, considering that Toby Hooper directed one and two and then kind of left the franchise, I wonder if he meant part two to be sort of a definitive ending or, you know, maybe he wanted to craft his own follow-up later on. Who knows? But, uh, or I don't know anyway. I'm sure it's been talked about. But I... That's the only thing that monkey wrenches the entire thing for me is seeing Carolyn Williams in part three. It's just kind of like, oh, well, we kind of have to consider that, you know, Leatherface is just a natural uh, natural extension of two then because, uh, you know, we just have to – we kind of have to imagine that Leatherface has, like, mutant Wolverine-like healing abilities then for him to still be walking around in that sequel, at least as much as, like, Michael Myers or Jason Voorhees anyway. But uh... So I think it's – the way the dialogue, from what I remember from three, it it's implied that he has a different family. Like they call 
essentially Drayton's character becomes W.E. Sawyer and he like dies in prison or something in three. And it's so it's it's an alternate timeline or an alternate person. Who knows? It's. I don't know. They just constantly change the timelines around, but she is supposed to be stretch. So I will consider it to be canon. <laughs> because I trust Caroline with that. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the whole W. Sawyer thing like that comes in the opening narration and watching Chainsaw 2 again, you know, the movie opens with the same sort of opening narration that the original mm-hmm. film did, you know, but instead of John Larroquette, uh, who somehow, you know, I, I always equate that guy with like Night Court and being funny, but <laughs> by God, he delivered, a, you know, an opening narration that was genuinely sort of chilling. But this time around, we get kind of like a poor man's version of 1980s Wilford Brimley, just sort of dashing it all off in this kind of cavalier manner. And it's like, it, it, it should be creepy, but instead it's weirdly almost humorous, which is pretty much the perfect way to begin the film, I think. And then we immediately cut from them to the, uh, or from that opening narration to, uh, to the yuppie frat boy assholes in the beginning who, uh, you know, watching it this time around, it's funny to consider that, All of the events in the movie, everything uh, terrible that happens to our heroes, the ones who are really responsible for everything that happens in the film are the yuppie frat boy assholes. You know, the Sawyers in the very beginning, they weren't being the antagonists in the opening scene. It was the guys forcing them to play a game of chicken that really sort of kicks things off. And if it hadn't been for those jackasses, then Stretch and company never would have become drawn into the Sawyers' world. And, you know, one wonders if... uh, Lefty even would have ever found the Sawyers at that point. So, I mean, do we do we thank the yuppies for this or do we hate them? I think the yuppies are the true villains in this movie. I side with the Sawyers like they needed to die. <laughs> I've never rooted so hard for someone to die. Like I screamed excitedly and I like still get all excited whenever the the killing blow hits the driver. I'm like, yeah. Oh my god, and that's a great effect too. I mean, it's there's something about it that's fake as hell, especially the uh, the shot behind the puppet. But it's so much fun at the same time, and it's so in keeping with the, uh, I think, sort of the fabric of the movie that you're just kind of like, yeah, no, this is completely cool. That's exactly the way it should look, you know? Yep. And I love it. And I wonder, you know, too, the fact that we opened the movie with, uh, you know, those frat boys sort of uh, being the aggressors, like... Uh, you know, much as there's been, like, commentary on the original movie's sort of, like, thematic ties to its time and, you know, Vietnam, um, you know, Hooper, I think, had discussed in interviews, like, the importance of setting the sequel against the backdrop of Reagan's America, you know, beyond it simply just being mm-hmm. contemporary, you know, making this movie uh, uh, a bit of a satire on capitalism. But I'm wondering, yep. you know, watching it again, though... I... I, I wonder how much, you know, I always sort of accepted that as fact, you know, back in the day when I first picked up the movie on DVD and, you know, did a bit of reading and I was, you know, probably in my 20s revisiting the movie for the first time. And you hear it and it's like, oh, of course it is. Yes, because that's that's what he says it is. But, you know, watching it this time around and sort of like uh, keeping an eye out for that, I'm wondering how much of that is actually borne out by the film itself. You know, it, it's interesting to see the film open with, Again, a couple of yuppie frat boy assholes shooting up Texas landmark signs before, you know, meeting a bloody end at the hands of real Texans. And, you know, and then there's something kind of interesting about the finale being set in uh, in Texas battle land. They're not shooting up signs necessarily about a Texas landmark. 
what they're shooting up is the advertisement signs for Texas Battleland. They're saying, remember the Alamo at Texas Battleland. Holy shit, every single one is uh, is an advertisement? Yeah, it's so it's all the I same uh, font. So it's all the same font. And so they're they're drumming up that Texas pride by talking about these battles, like the Battle of San Jacinto, uh, remember the Alamo, all of that. And it's all the same font for Texas Battleland. And it's like the very, you know, you go drive on a road trip and you pass like five different signs that are spelling something out for you. I, That's yes. what those signs are. I feel dim. Don't feel dim. I've watched this movie way too many times. <laughs> but I, I, like, I wonder then, though, I'll, I'll ask you then, too, then, like, if... I, I wonder if the movie isn't sort of lashing out a bit wildly for any deeper meaning rather than actually having any. I'm, and I'm not knocking the movie for that. Honestly, with the tale being told, I think what's there is enough, you know, it to simply portray the error and s- sort of drop this madness into the middle of it rather than maybe wrestling with its potential subtext any further than it does? Or do you think I'm completely off base there? I think it's... I think that there's so... I, I The subtext is there. Um... But you got to remember, they they did cut out uh, a pretty big scene that gave some very clear context for the Sawyer family. Uh, but but I actually had to point this out at um, the showing I was at because they were like, "Well, we really missed that they had all this backstory for Chop Top. All of that backstory and the dialogue from that scene that gives you the actual backstory of what happened to the Sawyers is still in the movie." But there is so much to look at and so much to listen to and so much going on that people miss the subtext. And so it's the subtext is is still there. That plot is still there. The thing is, is that it's you're so overwhelmed by all the other things going on that you're not actually hearing it. It took me a few times before I sat because I, I know the backstory for Chop Top anyways. But it took me a while to realize that they had recycled the sound from that cut clip. And it's it's Chop Top talking about how if he wasn't getting... So if you don't know, there's a... Chop Top is one of the, if, if not the best fleshed out character in the entire Chainsaw universe. That's certainly up to this point and, and for years to come. He has a massive backstory that Bill and Toby and Tom Savini all worked on when they were, do- and Tom Savini and Bill in particular, as they were doing the makeup, they came up with this, this fleshing out this backstory um, as well as like it's in the script. And it's him talking about how, um, so during the first movie, he gets sent to Vietnam. Um, he's the twin brother of uh, the hitchhikers slash nubbins. Uh, he gets sent to Vietnam, uh, a, I will not use the racial slur that he uses in the movie, but a uh, Viet Cong with a machete gets lucky, uh, hits him, and that's why he's got the plate in his head. And the government checks he gets as a result of those, the VA checks he gets as a result, are, are how they bought Texas Battleland and the, and I quote, rolling grill-a-go-go. <laughs> and so there's there's a whole story about all, with all of that happening in the background, and he wants to create, he Texas Battleland is failing, 
as a tourist draw, so he wants to like scrap it and do uh, Nomland, which is why he's screaming Nomland. <laughs> so there's there's this whole crazy, insane story, and like Drayton Sawyer, the obviously most sane one of the bun of the brothers, is like more focused on his you know small business, his food truck thing. But it's, uh, yeah, there's like a whole huge backstory for Chop Top. Like the reason he picks at the plate with the with the coat hanger, for instance, is because, and this is in the audio commentary, so this is not just, and Toby Hooper says it in his audio commentary as well. He, there's a plate under the, place under the plate that he figured out if he touches it with a, with a hot coat hanger, it gives him an instant orgasm. <laughs> oh my God. It's his G-spot. And so that's why he's <laughs> picking at the plate all the time is because he feels good. I will never be able to watch the movie the same way again. <laughs> oh, there's more. There's so much more. No. Um, but yeah, the subtext is still there. It's They didn't forego the plot. The plot is still there. It's It's just hard to pick up on and you kind of pick up on it either through having subtitles on or watching it a bunch. Sort of, but it's to me one of the things that keeps it fresh and new is every time I see it, I see something new. I notice something new. It has some of the the best set decoration in the history of horror, in my opinion, because there's always something new and hilarious to see in the radio station or, you know, when they're running through the giant amazing set in uh, Battleland. And that's not the only thing going on in the movie, too. I mean, I, I we should give Hooper credit for... Uh... Sort of, you know, I he he spends a lot of plates with this movie. I yeah. think, and you know, one of the things that I really appreciated was, you know, there is there's sort of a very fairy tale component to Hooper's Texas Chainsaw films. You know, the the first, uh, and I'm not the first person to point this out. I somebody had uh, drawn this parallel before with the first Chainsaw. You know, pointing out that it isn't too far astray from uh, Hansel and Gretel, really. Yep. You know, kids wander in the wilderness, they get lost, they find a house, and they find themselves in danger of becoming food, you know? And uh, mm-hmm. with Texas Chainsaw 2, though, we we spend the second half of the film in this underworld that kind mm-hmm. of bears a resemblance to the real world, but in a funhouse mirror sort of way. And it can't mm-hmm. possibly be a coincidence that Stretch falls down a damn rabbit hole to get there, you know? Mm-hmm. And it just, it makes it all so fun, but it's also very perverse in a way, in a great way that, you know, these are ultimately kind of like very adult spins on, you know, fairy tales. Yeah. And then, you know, and at the end she comes out a, a grown and changed person. And yeah. Although a, a very quite mad one. I mean, at the end of it stretches mad as a hatter, isn't she? I mean, she, I, I want to see that story. I want somebody to chart like how she winds up at the end of part two that way to, where she is in the third film. You know, she seems very sort of focused and put together in the third movie. I, But, my God, yeah. the, the journey to have gotten there. <laughs> but They to... just don't make women the same here that they do in Texas. <laughs> but, I, you know, it, it's something else he deals with, though, that's really sort of... Um, it's intermittently, like, funny, but also really uncomfortable, is sort of the bizarre... Would you call it a relationship between Stretch and Leatherface? The the non-relationship, the whatever the hell it is. I mean, it's it, it it's it, it really icky in a way. But it's also, a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I 
you know, I was surprised to read a review that described, you know, that initial sequence in the uh, radio station. They they sort of uh, described it as a bit of a metaphorical rape, you know, sort of when... Metaphorical? Like, that's pretty in your face about it. <laughs> and certainly, well, I, but, you know, metaphorical, it's... Metaphorical, like, you gotta look for that. <laughs> But I wonder, I'm, you know... Her legs are open, and he's thrusting a chainsaw with his hips towards her crotch and spraying <laughs> her with soda and ice as he's making excited noises and licking his lips. And then, you know, he comes too soon and raises the chainsaw in the air and screams in rage and, and runs out. Yeah, no, it's totally metaphorical. It's a tad subtle. You know, it kind of plays you know? under the surface. But, uh, <laughs> Just a bit. But, you know, it's funny that, like, when reading about it, that's what... You know, people yeah. focus on that aspect of it. And one thing that I, I don't see people discuss a whole lot is the fact that, like, Stretch really sort of, like, manages to reverse that situation. And she sort of manages to wield her sexuality in a way to stun Leatherface and sort of short-circuit his mania in a way. And, you know, I guess ultimately, like, save herself in that moment. But it felt like a weirdly, like, empowering moment by the end of that sequence, even as tense as it was. Yeah. It definitely is, um, and I mean, Caroline has, has mentioned that as well, is that she feels Stretch is a very strong feminist character because she's put in this impossible situation and, and figures out in a panic how to overcome it. And to me, if I'm being honest, she's one of the most realistic heroines in horror that I have ever seen. Like her, Between her and Christy Cotton, I think, are two of the most original because they are, are best because it's the most real reactions that people would have to this. Is You're either going to go cry in the corner or you're going to do anything you can to get out of there. And if you're seeing, oh my God, like he's getting distracted by this, let me use it against him. And like you can tell she's still panicking and freaking out. She's just, how good are you? Like, this is going to sound horrible, but what woman hasn't been in a situation like that where it's somebody who's hitting on them and you literally or, or trying to pressure you into something and you get out of it by, by figuring out which window you can go through, what thing to do or say to get out of there. And so it's, it's a very real heroine to me because she's traumatized and, and being tortured and, you know, there's a guy with a chainsaw between her legs and she just finds something and pushes through it. And I think that's a thing that a lot of women relate to and why so many women love stretch. Yeah. And I do think she is brilliant and she is different from perhaps any other. I mean, would you watching the first movie? I think Sally Hardesty is absolutely a final girl, but yeah. you know, would I, I almost don't even view Stretch as a final girl at all. Like she is, she is the film's hero, full stop. Yep. I think even more so than Lefty Enright. I don't think, you know, she is not somebody with an investigative gaze. You know, she doesn't fall into all of the tropes that we associate with final girls. Like she is, simply put, like yeah, the the film's hero. And it's interesting to me that, you know, I think as a result, even though she's constantly in danger in the final half of the movie, there is something about knowing that she is never really in danger from Leatherface. Uh, you know, it's always the other family members. It's it's mostly, obviously, uh, Chop Top, you know, that, that sort of, um, 
I don't know. It, it undercuts the tension a little bit, but not in a bad way. I, I think it just yeah. it provides like a really interesting dynamic where you realize at a certain point that, you know, from Leatherface's point of view, uh, Stretch is the secret that he has to keep. He's she's no mm-hmm. longer a potential victim and, to him. And um, and just, you know, watching Leatherface in this film is very strange, too. You know, he's <laughs> this one. He he is in no way Gunner Hansen. You know, we just have to accept that straight <laughs> off the bat, you know. But then again, you know, Hansen, I don't think would have worked in this film. I don't think nor would Bill Johnson have worked in the first film. You know, they're sort of they're perfectly suited to their respective films. And with the original, we <sighs> We have a Leatherface who is almost presented as a child. You know, he reacts yeah. blindly to events. He can't control his emotions. He is utterly bewildered at one point in the film, wondering why the hell all of these people keep showing up to his house. You know, he, when yeah. he has that one quiet moment to his, himself. He, he just seems like an overwhelmed kid. Whereas, yeah. you know, in Chainsaw 2, he's still lethal. He still rages. But... Now he's more curious about the opposite sex. Now he's a bit more of a thinker. At least, you know, I think hiding a woman he's interested in would have been beyond Leatherface in the first film. So it's 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 interesting to see that kind of evolution where in the first movie he's a kid and in the second film maybe he's like a he's more of a teenager, you know. Uh yeah. And but but it's also kind of sad that the way his family treats him is still the same. You know, even though he's yeah. aged, he's evolved a bit, he's still the black sheep of the family. He is the low man on the totem pole, sadly. Yeah. And he's, you know, how everyone always will say, especially like with the Jasons, oh, the, you know, Kane Hodder is my Jason. To me, Bill Johnson and Bob Elmore are my leather face. There's never going to be, and I love Gunner. But like, that was the first leather face that I saw. And to me, it was like the only time leather face actually kind of creeped me out. And I mean, <laughs> I got over that pretty quickly. Like, I love Bubba. But. It's the the licking of the lips and just kind of how open he is is so startling because you can read Leatherface like a book. There's never a point where you don't understand exactly what Leatherface is thinking, even though there's a Tom Savini mask with an ear on the neck over his face. (laughs) You can tell every emotion he's going through, and it's a very open, unguarded thing, and it makes Leatherface more terrifying to me because it's more sympathetic. It's more like save this poor baby like he's with these crazy people go i don't know put him to work in a forest or a butcher factory or something like grandpa was like this poor poor guy is just trying to be a guy (laughs) and one wonders what his life might have been like had he not been saddled with his family he's not you know the thing about the portrayals of leatherface in the hooper movies is that he's not he isn't evil You know, he just has the poor misfortune of being, you know, raised by evil people, you know, and uh, and I think that's different by the time you get to um, to to even Leatherface and then the next generation. You know, he's still the maybe arguably the most innocent out of that family, but there's something a bit more uh, uh, sort of dark and uh, mean spirited about. But are they evil? Like, you're saying the Sawyer family are evil. Are they evil? Or are they just a family that is unfortunately probably a bit inbred that are just doing their best they can to survive? Like, I I think about that a lot. Like, are they really evil? Because, I mean, in Texas Chainsaw 2, they go out and actually hunt people. 
But what you see in like in the deleted scenes and stuff is they're hunting asshole college people that like no one likes. <laughs> like they're doing us a favor. They're the exterminators. Are they really evil? Like if you're gonna have to make someone into chili, they're not raiding like your local orphanage. Uh, would you ever want to meet the Sawyer fan in real life? Sawyer family in real life. You're talking to somebody who has spent a considerable amount of time with Chop Top. <laughs> And he's uh, one of the best people I've ever met in my life. He's hilarious. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, probably not, but I would try Drayton's Chili, even even knowing it's people. I'd be like, you know what? Give me some of that Soylent Green. <laughs> I thought the exact same thing this time around. Ne- never before on a previous viewing, but this time when he won the award, I was just like, yeah, he's he's cooking soy like green. Yeah, <laughs> and it's but funny it's that like... he is. There's something hilarious about the fact that he has turned a bunch of Texan chili enthusiasts into unwitting cannibals. You know, you get the mm-hmm. sense in that scene that yeah, they love his chili so much they might not even mind that much if they did know they were eating people. Right, exactly. They're totally willing to believe it's a hard shell peppercorn, even though it looks neither like a tooth, a fingernail, or a hard shell peppercorn. <laughs> Oh God! I you know, I will say in the in those early scenes, you know, when they note where they are and where the uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre was, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously they've taken a good deal of time to make tax, Texas Battleland what it is. But mm-hmm. you know, from moving from South Texas to Northeast Texas, do you think the fallout of the events covered in the original movie? made the Sawyer clan simply switch Texan poles to hide, or do you think? To some extent, do you think they've been nomadic for some time? You know, just kind of like traveling all over Texas. You know, because part of me wants to believe that, you know, there, there's something almost like mythic about those characters in a way. And I want to believe that if you step foot at, you know, any part of Texas, that you are in danger of running afoul of Leatherface and his, you know, his clan. As opposed to them simply setting up shop and staying there forever. So, so the Sawyer family, among other th- influences, uh, the primary influences are the Texas Killing Fields, which is a thing. Um, it's a it's a wide swath of Texas where the people find a bunch of bodies um, or have found a bunch of bodies, and that was a big thing around the time that the movies came out. And then the um, obviously Ed Gein. So um, I would say my if I were to. So the so okay so a little bit of backstory uh, that literally I had to put subtitles on the film to get all of it because really the only thing I pay attention to when they bring Grandpa out is them shouting Slurpy Booty Time, <laughs> which what the hell is that? I don't want to know. So, okay, they feed Grandpa a liquid diet of blood and whatnot, um, and that is how Grandpa has lived so long. So Grandpa and their uh, Drayton is giving this exposition, and I love Jim Jim Sidow, but it is it is a little hard to understand him when you're watching the utter chaos that is happening in that scene, and you're looking at all the weird skeletons and all that, and it's it gets hard to understand. So I put on the subtitles, and I was actually very interested to see that I was missing parts of Grandpa's story. Grandpa used to work in a slaughterhouse um, until his, and this is some of that that exposition we were talking about earlier 
until his he was replaced essentially by a machine that killed the cows. And they're talking about he used to be the best one. You know, he could knock the cows out in one hit kind of thing. And he, he loved killing. Um, and then because of the repla- the way things were changing um, with the economy, the way, you know, he was being replaced at the slaughterhouse and whatever with the newest model, um, he just up and walked off the job. And so started killing people. And so they fell into poverty uh, with the gas station and the house. Um, and this is exposition. They don't talk about the gas station and the house, but uh, they fell into poverty because of it. And it was They called it the time of shame, the great, the great shame, uh, because uh, they fell into a rut over it. And then Chop Top came back from, um, you know, and so in the gas station, he's selling chili and he's selling... They didn't really have gas, actually, because it's out. But they're selling chili, and, like, they're doing the best they can in the middle of nowhere, Texas, to do this. And, like, all they have is this kind of semi-abandoned house. So who knows whether they owned it or they're squatters. But the impression I got is that when Chop Top came back from Nam, they took his government checks and immediately bought a place closer to major hubs uh, and away from that area so that they could have this new business. That makes sense. I uh, I wonder, though, was he still getting checks? Even at that point? Because, you know, obviously in the world of this movie, everyone knows that that clan is what, you know, what carried out the events of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So... <laughs> Did anyone think to look like, okay, what, what members comprise this family? Uh, how might we go about tracking them down? Um, you know, I, I, They must have been squatters then. They must not have had their name on anything. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, yeah, it's curious. One wonders how they came to be in that house in the first place, you know. But I love that. I love the idea that they could just pop up anywhere, you know. Um, yeah. It, it makes it all the more creepy. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Oh. There, um, no, it's uh, so it's it's very interesting to me because obviously they change the lore all the time and all that. So one of the things to consider though is that do you really think Nubbin Sawyer says that on his birth certificate and like that Chop Top obviously had a name before someone hit him with a machete? <laughs> so I mean, if, if everyone always knows them as like whatever, you know, Chop Top Sawyer or whatever, some, by some nickname, which everyone clearly has in this movie, maybe that's how they got away with no one figuring out who they are is because, you know, no one ever actually knew their real name. Eventually somebody found out that somebody was called W.E. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Eesh. The cook. <laughs> All right. I uh, and you know just one last thing I have to mention. Like, did, did did any horror film ever have as great an end credit song as Stuart Copeland's "Strange Things Happen"? Oh God, no, no, they really didn't. <laughs> that soundtrack to Texas Chainsaw Two is phenomenal, and people will knock it because they're like, oh, you know, the parts that Toby Hooper did, like the actual soundtrack. I'm like, yeah, but it makes up for it with all of the amazing, like with the cramps and Timbuk Three Concrete. Blonde, oingo boingo, like you really can't beat the the actual you know the songs that they got for that movie. It just sets the perfect mood for all of it. 
I agree entirely. And I, somehow, I think we've reached about the end of our time. We are quickly approaching the one-hour mark. It doesn't seem like any time has gone by at all. Can I ask, do you have any final parting thoughts on Texas Chainsaw 2? Oh, boy, do I have thoughts on that. Um, no, I think my number one thing I recommend for people is if you get a chance to see it in an audience participation setting, see it in an audience participation setting, listen to the audio commentaries, listen to, to interviews with Bill, who, by the way, went and made a band with Buckethead where he reprises his Chop Top character. And there was actually going to be a sequel with Chop Top diving in it so there's a lot of fun chop stop chop top homework to do but like read and watch these things because there's so much in that film that you can't possibly find just watching it you have to hear people talk about it you've got to hit because there's always something new to learn i mean it's it gives more to the fans over time than any other horror film i have yet to see so watch it, watch it again, listen to the audio commentaries, learn what you can about it because it's so fascinating and amazing and so much work went into even the smallest detail in that film that you really can only appreciate it more over time. All right, I'm sorry. One last quick question then I'll ask. Who do you think has seen this movie more times, yourself or Rob Zombie? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, it's funny watching it again i was just kind of like oh my god he he really drew a lot from this i think this movie is a huge inspiration for him i believe he sought bill out because he loved chop top actually love it like he was a huge chop- he loves texas chainsaw uh and he's never rob made zombie one probably- how is it that we have not gotten a rob zombie texas chainsaw yet i mean it's like it's it's right there it's the most obvious thing in the world and yet it hasn't happened uh, complications with the rights between the movies is probably a big thing on that. Um, also, I don't think he, I really think it's probably the complication because he would want to do something influenced by Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2 would be my guess. I don't know, Rob. Um, but the rights for Texas Chainsaw 2 are in limbo right now. As Bill has recently said, he actually wants to get the rights for it because the Texas Chainsaw 2 rights and Chop Top rights are in limbo because when um, the rights for the original were bought out, Texas Chainsaw 2 was not included in that since it was done through a different company. And so it's he's just kind of stuck uh, not doing anything. And I feel like if Rob was going to do it, he'd want Chop Top. Yeah. Yeah, that's, oh my God, I'm trying to imagine his his version of Chop Top. And I would hope he would bring Bill Mosley oh, back. You don't have to director. imagine it. It's in mm-hmm. Otis. <laughs> and plus, I mean, you know, it is so unfair that Leatherface can get a chainsaw through the gut. Yeah. And he can pop up in Leatherface. Okay, fine. But I mean, you know, Chop Top we see disappear in this amazing stunt sequence at the end of Chainsaw 2. And we never see him again. That's just not right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> You you see him again. You got to go listen to the corn bugs. But uh, there was there was a sequel planned. There's that you can find the trailer for it on YouTube. I believe Toby Hooper's son was going to do it with Bill, and Bill reprises his role as Chopped Up. It's called All American Massacre, is what it was supposed to be called. Um, but again, rights and and 
you know, backers and issues and whatnot. So it didn't happen. But I mean, Bill still wants to revisit Chop Top. Bill really wants to revisit Chop Top. As you can see, if you ever see him at a convention, he loves Chop Top. And with good reason. It's a phenomenal character. So we can always just cross our fingers that we're going to find a way to free Chop Top up and Bill gets to keep going with him. That's great. And thank you so much for choosing the movie to talk about, too. Like, it was it was great revisiting it. And especially, like I said, you know, and I would recommend this to listeners out there. Watch the movie on its own. Don't necessarily watch it as a follow-up viewing to the original movie. Just kind of view it on its own. And uh, I, in a way, I think it's it's far more enjoyable that way. Absolutely. Now, can I ask, where uh, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what do you have coming up in the future? Tell us about some uh, some cool cons, maybe, that are coming fans' way. Sure. Uh, you can find me. I do most of my horror interactions on Twitter. It's M-I-S-S-L-U-S-Y-D, Miss Lucid. Um, let's see. I will be lurking around Days of the Dead, Las Vegas, and Monster Palooza uh, coming up next. But there are a few other things in the works that I can't talk about right now. Um, I wish I could, but you can definitely find me at Days of the Dead Vegas and Monster Palooza. I will be lurking around with my buddies, um, probably around the Hellraiser tables. And um, let's see, I beyond that, I, uh, I'm working on a set for a new horror host show. Which uh, you can, if you follow Scream Stream, you'll be able to see it there. Um, and that should be coming later this year. Very cool. All right. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate your time. Absolutely. And thank you for having me and, and giving me a chance to talk Chainsaw 2 with another horror fan. <laughs> and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comments section below. Rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends about us. Yell at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much and have a great weekend. Strange things happen to a man on the road. Strange things happen- Well, they just cut off.